Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. So this episode is another best of episode, and this best of episode focuses on founders of companies. And we've had so many founders on the uh, podcast, but we picked out you know a few. Actually, we have uh, five of them on this episode: Haran, Julia Pimsler, Brian Smith, Damon Gersh, and Chris Wilkerson. And they're all going to bring us some great stories about uh, you know how they founded their business and what they're doing now. And uh, combined, uh, you know, there are going to be some super great tips here. You know, I love the origin stories, and you're going to hear some of those. I love how people's not only origin stories, but their journey through building their businesses uh, have uh, led to lessons that they now apply either currently to teach for themselves or to teach other entrepreneurs. And uh, that's what you're going to hear in this uh in this episode with a, you know, a, a variety of businesses, a variety of types of people, and uh, just some great, I mean, just wisdom here. And these, uh, these episodes, um, you know, obviously are all, we'll, we'll, I'll give you the, uh, as we get through each ex- excerpt, I'll give you the uh, full episode for each of them because they're really worth going back to and, you know, and, and listening to. So the first clip we have up is from Niles Heron. And Niles is from uh, PopDog. He's the founder of PopDog. And uh, Niles was back on episode 33, so definitely check out his full episode, episode 33. And he really talks about the need for organic you know, growth for a customer base to start with, but then how you take that, you know, once you're able to sell to one or two customers, to take that and then scale through deals. So let's listen to Niles. You have to start with a sale. There needs to be an actual customer for an actual product. However... Once you have found the actual customers for your actual product, whatever that product is, now you can start augmenting. And now you can start saying, how do I amplify this message? Because so often what it actually comes down to is uh, you can force growth in kind of uh, any number of directions. But if you think about it as a point in, in space and time, like literally a dot on a plane, you can go in any direction, but if you go in all directions, you grow much, uh, much slower in yeah. a lot of ways, right? Because you have so much more ground to cover, which means that in order to be successful, often scale is about picking one direction and leaning into it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, often I would even argue, that is where investment really does matter. That's where a partnership, a JV really does matter. Who else is going in that direction? If I'm bringing, let's say I have 10,000 customers and I'm going to head on this metaphor of a, of a, a dot in space, I'm going to head, you know, north by northeast. <laughs> Those 10,000 customers, unless I am the only thing they will ever need in their life, will also need food. They will need water as we head 
north by northeast, they will need cars, they will need service stations, they will need all types of things, amenities on their journey with me as my customers north by northeast, which means that I am also explicitly bringing 10,000 customers towards other businesses that will get value from them. Yes. Who are those businesses? Where are their synergies? How do we amplify each other's message? Because some of that other business, which is a business, is in business, which means they also have a customer base. Like it is literally two businesses dragging their customer bases towards each other and saying, how do we combine these to get maximum value for both of us? If I cross over to 20% of your people and you cross over to 20% of my people, then we literally each can gain, you know, independent of each other, potentially, right? Uh, you know, significant customer bases and insignificant exposures, where, where does it make sense for us to work together, especially when you're talking about completely non-carnivorous uh, businesses, right? Not like I'm a smoothie shop and you're a juicery. Those might be competitive businesses. I might not want, I might just want to like, you know, figure out who you're partnered with and then go find their competitors and partner with them. Yeah. Right. But so there are always different levers, but it's about finding the synergies and recognizing that like no one is everything to anyone. And why do you think some, so some businesses go and do that. And I find at least that some businesses are just, I mean, again, I'm a hundred percent. I agree with you. You need, you need organic growth. That's the base of your business, right? You, you're not going to, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess there are companies out there that just solely are roll up companies or whatever, but you know, absent that, you know, 90, whatever, 8% of your businesses, real businesses are going to, you know, need, need customers, need products, need services, et cetera. But then there are some of those businesses that goes out, go out and find those strategic alliances and those joint ventures and those, you know, joint marketing opportunities and those affiliate uh, opportunities or whatever they are. And a lot of them don't. And a lot of them, I see they're banging their heads against the wall, trying to find more customers organically and they're stalled and they, and, you know, they don't do it. What do you think there is about maybe the mindset or the mentality or the resources or whatever it is? No, it's a hundred percent a mentality thing. In in what world? Like there, there, and this is where I was saying this is the reason you need uh, an organic customer base before you decide to do any deals or try to raise money or anything, right? Unless you are talking about very high tech moonshot growth, in which is you know the idea that someone is going to invest billions of dollars into your business and you don't have a revenue strategy, right? Like, but you're just building something so cool that you'll figure it out. That happens. Right. It happens a lot in Silicon Valley. I'm not saying that's not viable. Frankly, like I just raised money on not that, but kind of that. So like, I'm not looking down at that, at that model. But the reason you need a customer is that you need to understand why you don't have two customers. Right. If you don't understand why you don't have two customers, you might as well have zero. Because the whole point of this partnership is to go from one customer to two customers, from two to four, from four to eight, et cetera, et cetera, right? And every deal you make, it's got to be that. Otherwise, what are you even doing? Like, what, what is the business that you're in if you're not in the business of growing your customer base, either by deepening your relationship with existing customers or by getting new customers? Either is fine. So I just love Niall's perspective. You know, he, he just really comes from a, a particular view that is right on the mark for me, really understands what it takes to you know, create a business that actually has traction in sales and customers, and then how to leverage that through deals, not just through capital, as he said, right? There's all kinds of opportunities. So I'm sure you got value there. Check out Niall's full episode on episode 33. Upcoming now is Julia Pimsler. Julia's a great friend of mine, 
We know each other from Entrepreneurs Organization, and we're going to have two clips from Julia. Let me introduce the first one, uh, and they're both from her uh, episode, which is episode 34, interestingly, the one right after Dials. And, uh, you know, Julia built Little Pims, which is a language learning company from nothing to over a million dollars. And now she works with other women business owners to get to a million dollars, which is a very rare thing. So definitely check out her wisdom right here. What I'm doing now at Million Dollar Women really comes straight out of my own personal experience of growing my first business, Little Pim, up into the multi-millions. It was so hard along the way. I remember I got to about 400, 500,000, and I was just working day and night, Corey. I remember it's like I had two little kids at home under the age of six, and I would come home and get back on the computer after dinner and you know try to deal with the kids and do the business and work in six days a week. And I just got so exhausted and kind of burned out. Even though I loved helping parents be their kids' first language teachers, you know, I had this language teaching business. And that was when I fortunately found the Entrepreneurs Organization and the Accelerator Program that showed me a different way of working, completely different than how I was running my business, which really was like solo printer nightmare, you know, where I was just trying to do everything from answer the customer emails to fix the broken links on the website to do all the invoicing to designing the product. And that really was not going to get me to a million ever, frankly, but I just didn't know that at the time. So when I got exposed to this whole other way of working, it really changed my mindset. It changed how I did my work. And then I wound up, as you mentioned, raising you know, two million in venture capital, scaling up the company, getting up into the multi-millions. And that was when I also got informed about how few women actually get there because it's fewer than 3% of women get to a million in revenues. And if you're a woman of color, it's fewer than 1% and very little VC money getting invested into women run companies. It goes between two and 4%. So that's really what galvanized me to say, Hey, how can we change these statistics, you know, in my lifetime? Because this just seems so crazy that so few women were getting to a million, which is really just getting off go in the business world. And, you know, I didn't go to business school. I don't have a finance background. I had to learn it all on the job. And I wanted to make it easier for other women who were facing these similar obstacles to get over them more easily than I did and get to that million dollar mark. And so what are the offerings that you have now that help people do that? We created an online group coaching program, Corey, so that more women can go through the program. When I first wrote Million Dollar Women, and it sold about 10,000 copies from Simon & Schuster, I had women contacting me from all over the country saying, well, hey, I want to do what you did. You know, I want to scale up my business. So I did a little bit of one-on-one coaching, but quickly realized that wasn't scalable. And since my mission has been to help 1 million women get to 1 million in revenues, I knew I'd have to find a solution that graduated, you know, a lot of women at a time. So we created this online business school with my team. And it's a way for women in four months to learn how to completely change their business from one where they are what I call the octopreneur, which is the entrepreneur with eight arms, like an octopus doing everything. Uh, to one where they're the leader, enabling other people to do the work and starting to really scale faster. That's that's absolutely you know huge. And and listen, you and I know each other from EO Entrepreneurs Organization. And yeah, you were my mentor there. I owe a lot of this to you. I mean it. That's so sweet of you to say. Uh, you know, but that, I mean that that organization really uh, helps us, right? You know, on uh, how to create businesses that aren't totally dependent upon us and the accelerated programs committed to bringing people from a quarter of a million in revenue uh, or above up to over a million. 
so this conversation that Julia raises of going from solopreneur or as she calls it, entrepreneur, you know, to a leader and really building a scalable business is such a part of the entrepreneurial journey that frankly, a lot of people, men and women don't get past. And certainly, you know, the percentages on women are even lower. So I'm so impressed with Julia's work in terms of what she does here. And we're going to go right to another clip from Julia because I want you to get a little bit of the story on how she did a very early important deal for her little PIMS business, which helped accelerate it. And it's really an example of what I talk about on this podcast all the time, which is that you don't need to be a big company to do deals. You don't need significant capital. You can look to do key deals early on. So let's listen to this clip from Julia again. I remember early on, I went to a trade show and we were just a very young company, maybe making, I don't know, 300,000 in revenues, did not have a big footprint in this very crowded language teaching space we were in. Although we were one of the few programs for young children, we were a multimedia video series at the time. And I remember going to a children's trade show and meeting the folks from PBS who were you know, the dominant players in kids' education, certainly at the time. And I went over to their booth and said, oh, so you know, how are you teaching kids? And they had a whole platform, gaming platform that taught them math and reading and science. And I said, well, how about foreign language? And they're like, oh, no, we don't, we don't offer that. So I immediately saw this opportunity that we could be their sort of plug and play solution for foreign language. And of course, what was appealing to me was the brand of PBS that was, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in my space. So I told them what we were up to and created a follow up meeting. And within the space of a very short time, we had made a deal where we were producing the first foreign language teaching game for young children on the PBS platform. And so that in itself was a win. But what we were able to do with that is, I think, the most important piece, which is we then put a sticker on every single DVD we were selling at mass retail that said, as seen on PBS. And that alone was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales to have that strategic alliance with PBS when we were such a new small player in the space. So as I said, I, I just love that story about, I mean, think about it. Julia did a deal with PBS in the early days of her company when many might think, wow, how can a small company like that do a deal with such a brand like PBS? But you know, she pulled it off and so can you in your business. So check out episode 34 for her full story and the other wisdom that she gave that we don't have time to include here. Next up is a great founder's story. Almost everybody has heard of the iconic brand UGG and the guy who founded Brian Smith is uh, is coming up to tell his uh, a little piece of his amazing story. I mean, this is an episode, episode eight, one of the really early episodes. I was fortunate enough to have Brian on the show and you know he really came over with nothing from Australia and built this uh, this sheepskin boot company into an iconic brand, which is now, he's since sold it, but it's now, you know, a billion dollars in sales. I mean, it's crazy. So check out Brian Smith uh, coming to you right now. I was with a buddy. Uh, we were going to start this together and we realized we needed capital, you know, to buy, you know, 500 pairs of samples, or, you know, 500 pairs of product. And my roommate overheard me talking and said, hey, there's some guys at my office, you know, looking for investments. And just like that, without a business plan or anything in writing, we just on the enthusiasm that I had for how big it was going to be, they put in 20 grand, which I believe in today's terms is about 70,000. So it was a lot of money. And we did a 50-50 deal and started business that way. I love it. So What's become, you know, a billion dollar plus in revenue company 
started on a getting a manufacturer through uh, luck, <laughs> a luck of him uh, speaking to somebody you knew who knew you, and then you know a buddy of yours and a, and a roommate and twenty thousand dollars. So, right. uh, so they put in twenty thousand. They get fifty percent of the company. Any kind of uh, documentation on that? How, how did you do that deal, quote unquote? I mean, we went to the lawyers and got a partnership yeah. agreement drawn up. Great. So uh, that capital lasted us for a couple of years because it wasn't an instant hit. You know, the first retailers, you know, no shoe stores wanted to know about sheepskin in California. And, but the surf shops were really keen because all the California surfers who'd been to Australia on their surf trips had brought some back for their buddies. So within the surf market was really well known. That's why Doug and I, did, you know, my buddies decided to you know, raise the money and bring in 500 pairs. And so we went back to the surf shops who you know, told us it was going to be so fantastic to sell them all. And they go, oh man, well, you know, congratulations, but we couldn't sell them in our store. We only sell surfboards and trunks and you know sandals you know good luck with the shoe stores man so our first year sales was 28 pairs if you can believe that so that's that's a great lesson right everybody says they're interested till they have to write it you know it's a great idea till they have to write a check yeah we should have asked for orders up front (laughs) but then again if i had asked for orders up front nobody would know about ug because i wouldn't have done it right 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 because people would have said no right yeah. All right. What happens from there? So you have you have minimal sales in the first year. These people you expected to buy don't buy. What happens then? Yeah. Well, I got you know three three years of summer jobs. You know, because it was just dinkling along five thousand, ten thousand. The third year, I think we did twenty thousand, and our capital ran out. And that was like the first time I thought about giving up the business. But I did a, an interesting thing. I, I, I had a beer with one of my buddies who owned a surf shop. And I was telling him you know, my dilemma that sales weren't happening. And he called out to all these little young 12, 13-year-old grommets you know, who stored their surfboards in his shop. And he said, what do you guys think of UG? And they all went, oh, man, they're so fake. Those models in those ads, they can't surf. And I realized I'd been sending the wrong message to my target market. So I... Got a couple of young pro surfers who, who are just, you know, they're just 16, 17 years old, just about to turn pro. And I started running ads with them and the sales went to $200,000 like, <laughs> in, in one season purely because I nailed the marketing image and I made it so cool. You know, if these young kids are, you know, they'd read the ads and, oh, mom, I want a pair of Uggs for Christmas. And that was really what turned it around. But in that success came another disaster. We were out of money. So the, my next deal was to split our 50% down to 25 and bring in another investor who bought in a container of boots, which was, a, you know, 120,000 bucks. Okay. And so we, we did that for another three or four, uh, no, what, what, two seasons. And then sales were really starting to catch on now. California was really getting hot for UG. But then he, you know, we ran out of his money. And so, and, and the problem is that, you know, he, he thought he could just double his money by buying a container of boots, but he didn't realize the overhead and the marketing and all the, you know, stuff that goes on. So he wanted out. And then I was stuck between him and getting new investors in. And the new one, this, you know, I'm saying, well, the trademark's worth, you know, $100,000. No, 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 the trademark's worth, worth nothing without our money. And so we, we ended up, I did a deal to buy my partner out, both partners out, and where I was on the hook for paying them royalties. 
So this was just a little piece of Brian's story, really talking about how he had to constantly raise capital in the very early days and replace his investors. And that's a journey that a lot of funded companies go on. And, you know, really, I mean, bootstrap it. Now, I got to tell you something. I wanted to get that piece in there because it's an important piece for entrepreneurs to see and, you know, how he hustled and did that. But there's so many great stories in his episode, so many points at which he was going to give up on this business and how he just hustled and made it happen. In fact, what follows that clip in his episode, back on episode eight, listen to it, is an amazing, amazing story about how with the next set of investors, he went from you know, founding the company to owning nothing in the company and you know, panicking. And uh, thank God for his wife uh, to help pick him up there and how he went from that to not only regaining equity in the company, but uh, owning 100% of it you know, at the point that he finally sold it. So do not miss going back to uh, Brian's uh, episode eight if you haven't seen that. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Coming up now is a, is a good friend and client of mine, Damon Gersh. Damon's sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? You know, Brian Smith has this big brand that everybody's heard of. You know, Damon has this, uh, I mean, leading company in the in the restoration space, but it's not a space that, you know, most people hear about because he, you know, you know he deals with floods and fires and horrible things. And one of those was 9-11. And he's got this amazing, what we call choke point story on how he controlled the, the labor force when 9-11 happened. And this is a like a phenomenal lesson for you to look for the choke point in your business. So check out Damon's excerpt. So I uh, had my team and we had a pretty strong uh, leadership team. We were able to delegate big parcels of responsibility out. Uh, two guys were responsible for calling every crew that we had ever worked with and said, we're going to have a lot of business. We're going to need a lot of labor. And we need to know, are you with us or are you against us? Because we need an answer. You cannot split your loyalties here. You're either exclusively with us or you're out. And every single company that we called, even the ones that we don't work with very often, they knew that we were going to get the most business and that they were going to get paid and paid well from us, and that they were going to be treated well. So all those factors came together where we locked up the entire skilled labor market to a large extent in the New York area before a single project had even been called into our office. Wow. And, and, and here's the truth of it, right, Damon, that even though you uh, definitely would have been in the mix and maybe even been the leading candidate because of the reputation you had prior to this on a lot of these contracts. If you didn't have the labor for them, they would have gone elsewhere because you couldn't, you wouldn't have been able to handle them, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, with these labors, unless you take a proactive strategy like that, it's basically first come, first serve. So if one of my competitors happened to get a first job before I did and they get that crew, um, that crew's basically lost to me because they're just going to, rolled them from one project to the next. They're within my competitor's control. But by locking them up before we had any projects, once my competitors started to get jobs from their clients, they would call the crews and the crews say, sorry, I'm reserved. I can't work for you. So that happened to my competitors where they had leads and opportunities that they couldn't fulfill because they couldn't supply the labor because we had locked up the market. So a lot of those jobs wound up coming to us that uh, we were the second call on besides the first call jobs. 
That's great. So to wrap up this uh, little piece, just give a visual because I really want to like now it's intellectual, but I but I know you did something in terms of, you know, not only locking these people up, but right. You know, you had a place in New Jersey. I don't want to give away the story. I want you to tell it like yeah. on what you did and, the, and, and not only to show the commitment to the to the labor force, right, to have that deal locked up, but also to show, you know, your strength in the market and be able to get those deals. Uh, so tell that last piece of the story. Well, the army of skilled labor that we put together exceeded 1,600 people. So uh, you can imagine an army of all uh, black Maxon shirt-wearing people pouring into Lower Manhattan, into 3,000 apartments in Battery Park City, 50 office buildings. We restored Trinity Church and St. Paul's Chapel, countless businesses. So at lunchtime, when the guys take their break, you'd see a sea of 1,000 black shirts pouring into Broadway into the delis to get sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> So it was remarkable, and it was something that I never could have imagined that we did. And, of course, we had to uh, innovate uh, and be resilient because all the requirements change every day, military checkpoints and the access badges, and we devised a military structure because how do you lead a team of 1,600 people that we had no uh, person having more than 10 people reporting to them? So we built a military-type reporting structure, uh, and... uh, that's what we were able to commandeer that and ramp up to that army of labor. And then over several months, we sustained that. And then as uh, we started to clean up lower Manhattan, we were able to tail down and uh, keep our more solid regular crews on for the uh, final, let's say, last half of the work there. So wasn't that a great story from Damon? I mean, you know, locking up the labor force and getting all those contracts in 9-11. I mean, yeah, he had a strong, successful company before that, but this really propelled him to another level. And he tells some great other things in episode 25. So go back to that on how he continued to grow that business and then put together an industry association, which I helped him do. You know, that, that has really taken it, you know, to yet, yet another level. So there's so many great lessons from my friend Damon Gersh. Check out episode 25. Now we go to another uh, EO buddy of mine, Chris Wilkerson from High Bar Capital, episode 22, if you want to hear his full episode. And I like closing this, uh, you know, best of episode of Founders on Chris in that one of the things he talks about is creating a lifestyle by design. Like, you know, why are we creating a business the way we are? And you'll hear, as opposed to buying companies to flip them and sell them, he buys them, the ones he's passionate about, and then he creates a lifestyle for him, his family is, you know, in a way that, and I'm always a big believer in that. And frankly, if I go back to the other uh, people on this episode, the reason why it sort of wraps it up, even though we didn't, you know, they didn't talk about this particular uh, aspect, is I know that they've all created their own lifestyle by design. I mean, Niles Heron made a decision to move back to his hometown of Detroit consciously. You know, Julia has built this amazing business where she loves working with uh, entrepreneurial women and, and you know, and she has time with her kids and she's built it in a way that, that really works for her. You know, Brian Smith, sold his company and, you know, uh, and now he, he speaks and, and tells his story, which he's, you know, passionate about speaking about it and loves doing that. Damon has a management team that has, you know, run his company and he's able to really step back and, you know, doesn't have to work in the business, doesn't go into the office all that often. And now, you know, you're going to hear, you know, from Chris on that concept. And also, you're going to hear something about the ability to understand similarly what the other side wants and, and some mistakes he made early on and not reading that right. Because not only do you have to create what works for you, but you have to create what works for the other side of the deal. So check out Chris Wilkerson's excerpt. Running the businesses that I have, the lifestyle that I have and with my family, 
you know, we want to make sure that we give ourselves some great flexibility in what we want to do. So our goals are aligned all across all three and very much look at these businesses. I love running them. I love building them, having that excitement there and working with the teams. But I also want to make sure that I am, uh, I'm doing it for the right reasons, which is largely for the employees to help them benefit, obviously the customers, but also for my family. So the, we can do things that we want to as a family. That's great. And, and, you know, it's one of the things that I often talk about with entrepreneurs, you know, uh, there's a number of reasons why we become entrepreneurs, right? You know, we have a vision, we think we can do it better. We don't want to work for somebody. But one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes is that some quote unquote entrepreneurs basically buy themselves, you know, a job or get married to their business and they, and they don't like, what are the objectives? Why do we become an entrepreneur? For me, one of my highest objectives is freedom. And, you know, to design the life I want, and that's why I become an entrepreneur, and I hear you taking the same approach, so it really resonates with me. My wife and I always refer to it as lifestyle by design. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. So, so you've done a number of deals over the years. Uh, you know, they've ranged from uh, financing acquisitions and, you know, and business partnerships is something I know that you and I have talked about in the past as well, and there's some... Uh, pitfalls and, uh, and, and challenges in that area. So talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, how you do those right and uh, maybe where you've uh, learned some things over the years and uh, what our listeners can, can understand about those kind of deals. Yeah, I, and I think there's, there's two approaches, two items that I'll, I'll talk about. One is in an acquisition, and it was probably one of my earliest lessons. It took me one business that I acquired in particular that I'm thinking about, it took me three times to, to get to the table to get the deal done. And that was done over the period of about nine months. And at one point, one of the owners of the company, basically we were in their house. I'd been invited in. We were trying to finalize the deal. And the, at some point they just got up and said, you have clearly wasted your time and my time. Let me show you to the door. We're not doing this. <laughs> and I was, my jaw kind of hit the ground. And it was because I had missed some, some clues largely around what was important to the current owners. The second one was who was really making the decision. And I made a mistake on who I thought was really guiding the conversation. It had nothing to do with ownership, it would truly was about influence. And I missed that mark. And after I was shown the door, it took truly took me six months to get back in to talk to them about it after uh, kind of emotions had cooled off. I'd love to delve into that piece a little bit because sure. it's so, so important because understanding what the other side wants, what they care about, uh, what's important to them. And, and what's interesting to me in doing all the deals I've done is sometimes make that very clear and maybe we hear it or don't hear it. And sometimes I find that they might not even be clear on what's really important to them. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about either in that particular situation or in other situations where, you know, how you go about figuring out and hearing what's important to the other side and how that affects your deal making? Absolutely. I think very early on when I started doing the investing, my focus was so much on, hey, show me, show me your financials. Let's look at the numbers. I'm sure we could get something worked out here and we'll just, uh, we'll get it done. It was a very green MBA-like approach. Uh, and what I realized is that doesn't work. And so now as and where I spend my time is really, is actually trying to spend as much time with the owners, with the company, and looking to see what they say, ideally how they don't say, 
what their body language is during certain conversations, to also if I, if I have an opportunity to talk to other family members who may be involved with the business and even the employees if I can, and ask them, hey, what has it been like working with the owners? What have you seen that's really important to them? What do they value? And I, my experience so far has been it's more around what they don't say and or the tactic. I mean, I've had a deal that I'm looking at currently, and the one individual, the owner, has simply said, all I want you to do is take care of my girlfriend in this deal. And I was like, this, this, it's really interesting. Now, he was point blank about what he wanted, but most of the time, it is what they don't say that I'm looking for. So that was Chris Wilkerson again, uh, episode 22. Check out his full uh, uh, episode with a lot more wisdom about how he's built businesses, how he's invested in business, and his philosophy. I love his philosophy. So check that out. So folks, listen, those were six clips from five amazing, amazing founders. And you know that's one of the things on the DealQuest podcast. We have certain experts on who provide um, you know, expertise like investment bankers and things like that in the deal space. But we have a lot of entrepreneurs and founders on, and that's because that's the, the environment. That's where I play, okay? You know, that, that's who my clients are. That's who I spend my most time with. That's who I'm most passionate about. And I think that's where you know, a lot of lessons come from because they're not from a book. They're not from you know, the outside. They're from people's hard-earned you know, journey with the challenges and everything and the lessons they've learned. So I hope you got uh, amazing value from these five amazing founders and check out their full episodes on the DealQuest podcast, which for all of them, it was called Fueling Deals at that time. It was before the new branding. So, uh, But go back and check out all of their episodes because there's so much more wisdom in what they've given. Thank you all for listening. And listen, These are all amazing lessons that you can apply to help you create a deal-driven growth company for your own success and, as Chris Wilkinson says, to create a lifestyle by design. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a Mastermind format. To sign up for the free Mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.